this week as I was just rehearsing and thinking through today and looking over some scriptures and even just singing that song, it reminded me of another song that I sang growing up, Standing on the Promises. That song's over 100 years old. Now, I'm not sure if the song This We Know will be remembered in 100 years. I sure hope so. They both talk about the same thing. When Standing on the Promises was written over 100 years ago, it was written by a man named Russell Carter. It was about 1879, and he was diagnosed with a critical medical condition. His heart was failing. And so he prayed for God to heal him. But what brought about the song was that he determined whether God healed him or not, he would stand true and strong on God's promises, not his own um, human guarantees or even a doctor's or a medical diagnosis. He says, God, I'm going to stand strong on your promises regardless of the outcome. And from that experience, he wrote, Standing on the Promises. So whether it's an old song or a new song, I think we all would say that in the midst of circumstances that we aren't sure we understand or situations that bring forth lots of questions, it is the promises of God that become our foundation. And that thought is exactly what's communicated in the six verses of Psalm 13. Will you turn there? Psalm 13, let's look at this personal lament and yet another week in our series on the Psalms of Lament. Psalm 13, some DYKs about this song just to help you get an overview of it. It is one of the shortest of the laments, only six verses, and even in a word count, it's going to really get in there as a really short, succinct, to the point filled with clarity type of psalm. It's also, in my opinion, one of the most personal psalms of lament. At least 16 personal pronouns are used in these six verses. In fact, I would suggest, as we read it in a moment, that you circle all the personal pronouns. You'll begin to really feel and resonate with David's heartbeat. Musically speaking, this is a very intriguing psalm because in the Hebrew version of it, of course, it was a musical song. This is the Hebrews hymn book, so to speak. They're psalms. It actually has three stanzas, and you can see that in our English translation. It's one and two, three and four, five and six. Those are the three stanzas. But what's unique in the Hebrew version is that each stanza has a decreasing length. And you can kind of see that in some of the English translations. That verses one and two have a certain amount of words or structured a certain way. Three and four in a certain way, and five and six in a certain way. And you'll see that five and six are the shortest. And so the point, and I would say the poetic point of structuring this song in that way is that David's trying to show that he's moving from a tumultuous kind of mindset, lots of words, confusion, much noise, to a peaceful, simple mindset. He's going from complexity to simplicity. It's kind of the poetic arrangement. So it's a very intriguing, interesting psalm. You'll see that play out as we read it and look at it. You'll also find that really three themes emerge in this psalm. Jot these down. We'll mention them several times going forward. But you can pretty much center all of your thoughts around these three themes in these six verses. They are these. That verses 1 and 2 talk about frustrating perplexities. 
Verses 3 and 4 talk about a fearful prognosis that has arisen from those perplexities. But verses 5 and 6 comes along and makes sure that overriding all of those are God's faithful promises. So what do you say we dive into this chapter, understand it from this vantage point? I'll begin reading in verse 1. Will you follow along with me? Psalm 13, verse 1, the Bible says this, How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long will I store up anxious concerns within me, agony in my mind every day? How long will my enemy dominate me? Four times he asks the question, how long? Verse 3, consider me and answer, Lord my God. Restore brightness to my eyes, otherwise I will sleep in death. My enemy will say, I have triumphed over him, and my foes will rejoice because I am shaken. What's the next word in verse 5? Say it, church. But I have trusted in your faithful love. My heart will rejoice in your deliverance. I will sing to the Lord because he has treated me generously. Let's examine for a moment. The, the thoughts behind the first stanza, that of frustrating perplexities. I mean, it's not hard to spot this, is it, church? That four times he asked this question, how long? And he actually goes in, a varied, uh, in various directions. I think in the first part of verse 1, he's really looking uh, vertically. He seems frustrated with God. He seems to have trouble with the Lord's uh, responsiveness. You can see this in the first part of the verse, can you? Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? So he's got some vertical questions. As verse 2 opens, it seems like he's got more personal, internal questions. you see the verse here? He says, I've stored up anxious concerns. How long will these last? I have agony in my mind every day. How long will this last? So he seems to have perplexities with God and with himself. And then at the end of verse 2, he really seems to have frustrations and perplexities about his enemy. How long will they dominate me? You can say it like this, that his frustrating perplexities seem to be theological at first, and then personal, and then even social. But let's put it in our vernacular, can we? Here's what I think the uh, psalmist is really just saying in, in, a, in a really short way. He's just saying, Lord, I don't have answers to questions. I think a good word for this would be the word distress. When there's not a way to respond, to explain, to give an answer, to understand, we feel distress, whether it's theological, whether it's relational or personal. We feel the weight of distress upon us, what I call frustrating perplexities. Now, as you read this and you begin to relate, like, I felt like that. I've had moments like that. I have questions, I have frustrations. I've wondered things like this. Maybe you're also wondering what would make David wonder these kind of things. Like it seems pretty bold, Todd, to kind of ask God, how long have you forgotten me down here? I mean, it's a pretty bold posture for David, isn't it? It is. Let me explain to you the background, the context for this very short but very personal lament. This really is occurring probably in the midst of David fleeing for his life from King Saul. Now, jot this reference in your journal or in your Bible. Just jot 1 Samuel 20. 
And sometime this week with your small group, maybe with your family, some friends around lunch or dinner, I would investigate that chapter, perhaps 19 where it kind of begins, uh, and then even 21 and 22, and it goes forward. That's really the chapters that describe the period of David's life where he's running from Saul, where he's fleeing for his life. In fact, here's something quite intriguing. If you read 1 Samuel 20, the opening verses, David asks some questions. Now, those questions there are more horizontal. They're to other people. But they sound eerily similar to the questions in Psalm 13 that are more vertical in nature. My point is this. They kind of match in the fact that David has some honest questions about what's happening in my life at this point. Now, I'm going to make a reference here to something that occurred in 1 Samuel 12 because it helps us understand the whole psalm. In 1 Samuel 12, David's anointed as the next king of Israel. In fact, God uses the words, this is my anointed one, speaking of David, not his other brothers. But David's kind of in waiting. He's not yet king, but he knows he's been anointed. And so when this begins to occur in his life, that the current king's out to kill him and to eliminate the threat, David's mind's thinking, okay, I know what you said, God, but it's not looking that way. Now, can you relate to that? You can. I know what you promised, but I find myself in a frustrating predicament that's bringing about many perplexities. That's David's situation. His situation was such that his life was threatened. It was in danger. This is what he explains next in verses 3 and 4. This is why there was a fearful prognosis. Notice what he says. He asked God point blank, consider me and answer me, Lord my God. And that's a really good verse because he's asking the Lord earlier, Lord, have you forgotten me? Are you there? And so now he's saying, God, answer me, consider me, look upon me. And here's why, because he, he's fearing that if God doesn't restore him, that's the key word in these two verses, see the word restore, circle it. That's the real core of his request. Remember, every lament has a complaint section. Here, that'd be verses one and two. The words, how long, would be the core of his complaint. And the word restore is the core of his request. So God, here's what I need from you in this moment. Restore me. Because he fears for his life. See the phrase, restore brightness to my eyes. Otherwise, I will sleep in death. So David here, in no uncertain terms, is fearing for his life. He's um, running, he's fleeing, and he's worried, rightfully so, that, that his life will end. And so how will what you promised actually take place? How will it come true? Now, let me just make a note here and have you look at something with me that may be a little difficult to explain and even to grasp, but I want you to contemplate this with me. Because in verses 2 and 3, I think you find there's an ambiance for something deeper than David's own personal safety. And I want to navigate this well while using the right words best I can. But I think you'd admit with me, if you read 3 and 4, there's this sense that it's not just his own inner renewal and outward safety he's after. There seems to be the hint that he's saying, God, if you don't deliver me, the enemies will rejoice. They'll say they've triumphed. Now, why would David be worried about what his enemies are saying? It's because he knows God's name is on the line. He's well aware God made a promise. And Lord, if that promise doesn't come true, your character will have a ding on it. 
Are you following me? I, want to, I just want to navigate this. David seems to have a greater perspective than just his own personal circumstances. And I think this is healthy for us to realize that often we pray for deliverance and safety for strictly selfish reasons. Here David's praying, yes, he, he's fearing for his life, but he knows that the greater issue is, God, if you don't fulfill this promise, you're going to look like you don't keep your word. He, I think in some way he's more concerned that God's name not get reproached than he even keep his life. Are you kind of following me there? I love that about these verses. Helps us understand the right perspective to have when we pray. That there is something at stake greater than our own personal safety. It's the name of God and the cause of Christ. So David here does have a fearful prognosis. What if this is the end of my life? But he's concerned about it for greater reasons than just his own sake. As this verse ends, this call for help, this cry for help, really turns into an expression of trust, doesn't it? Do you see verses 5 and 6? But I have trusted. So David immediately moves from, okay, God, where are you? Um, I'm concerned and fearful. I'm frustrated. And suddenly he's landing now on God's promises that he trusts. Notice what he says he trusts. He trusts his faithful love. He says he rejoices in the Lord's deliverance. And he says he sings because the Lord has treated him generously. Three promises that he's banking on. Now, Taylor mentioned to you earlier that there are thousands of promises in the Bible that God has given to us. I think he even said there's over 8,000. Here's the best specific number I could find. It comes from a man named Everett Storms, who in 1956 read the Bible 27 times consecutively. I'm not sure how he did that, but history says he read it 27 times consecutively to mark every single promise in the Bible, and he calculated 8,810 promises. And over 7,000 of those are to mankind. Now, I've seen estimates, 3,000 promises. I've seen as high as 30,000. That seems a little high because there's only a little more than 31,000 verses in the Bible. And there's a good bit of narrative. So not sure the high end works, not sure the low end works. I like the scholarly approach and the research kind of angle of Edward, excuse me, Everett, um, did I say storms? Is that what I said? Whatever I said before, that's the right name. <laughs> I like his approach and the amount of calculated effort in marking the promises. So I can say to you, there are at least 8,810 promises, and these are three of them given to God's people. Notice them. And I want you to see how they point to what God promised David in 1 Samuel 12. Again, context matters. Here's what David is writing and why he's writing. He says, I trust in your faithful love. That's the word for covenant love, steadfast love. David knew, God, you made a promise to your people, the children of Israel. I would be their next king, and through me, the, the uh, type of the ultimate king, your coming kingdom would be seen. Like, this is the promise you made. 
You'd be faithful. You would not desert or abandon your people. So he's calling and, and standing on this promise that God will not forget his people. He'll be faithful in his love to them. He says his heart will rejoice in his deliverance. That's the physical act of how God is going to keep his promise. He will deliver David. David didn't know how. David didn't know when, but he was banking on this. God would do it because he promised I'd be king. And then he says here, he's treated me generously. And he says here, he sings to the Lord with this. So this is God's generous way of taking care of his people. By the way, it was in the kingdom of, kingdoms of David and Solomon that Israel thrived the most. David here, I think, is in some sense kind of maybe unintentionally foreshadowing the beauty of his kingship, the flourishing of Israel under him and his son Solomon. I think all three of these promises that he's counting on really are rooted in David's anticipation of what God was going to do, that God would fulfill what he said. He didn't know how, he didn't know when, but he knew God would. I love these two verses, God's faithful love, God's deliverance, and God's generosity. By the way, if you look at these two verses as well, notice how the, the response of David to his perplexities and to his fear, it goes from internal to external. Do you see that? He says, first of all, I've trusted, and then he's going to rejoice in his heart. Those are both internal matters. But then he says, next, I will sing to the Lord. So as our confidence in God's promises grows, it is expressed visually, verbally. What's internal becomes external. Your heart trusts, it rejoices, and then your mouth feels it and knows it, and you sing. Things like, this we know, or standing on the promises Pick your song about God's promises. When your heart trusts and rejoices, your mouth will know it, and it will sing. Notice one last thing about these last two verses. I think you would admit with me that verse 6 is a different David than verse 1, wouldn't you? Uh, you should admit that, by the way. I mean, in fact, you should kind of be caught off guard by that a bit. That here in verse 6, just a little bit after verse 1, he's saying, man, God's treated me generously. Just a few verses earlier, he said, hey, God, I think you've forgotten me. And what this shows us is this, that God's promises, when they're really like the, the foundation of our lamenting, then those promises move us from complexity the simplicity. Remember the movement of the song musically? Remember how it's structured poetically? This is how it happens. When God's promises are under our feet, then we can address to God honest questions. We can have a concise, clear, succinct request for God. We can have those conversations that are difficult about our questions and fears. And we can arrive at a place where our heart trusts and our voice sings because underneath all of that conversation... Underneath that lamenting moment, it's not our best guess. It's not a friend's advice. It's God's promises. I would say to you like this, that lamenting changes people. Wouldn't you agree? 
here's proof positive that when you lament biblically, which is on the promises of God, it does change you. It moves you. What a change we see in David. And I, I personally think this is a very real picture of many of us as humans, probably all of us as humans, as humans at different times. David here is holding two things that seem like they conflict in his hands. I feel like you've forgotten me. You're generous to me. Have you ever been in that situation? Sure you have. The diagnosis you just received, they said was terminal. But you trust God. Maybe your spouse has received a terminal diagnosis. You didn't think your final years would end this way. You have lots of questions. You have many fears. That's in this hand. But you trust God. That's in this hand. And these things exist at the same time. Some of you, your job is uncertain. In fact, for someone here, maybe you lost your job this week. You're not sure what is next, how the bills will get paid, what you'll do, but you trust God. They exist at the same time. Some of you are experiencing what Julie and I are experiencing now when realizing that you want the mission of God to move forward, the nations to hear, but then when it's your kid that's going to go, it feels a little different. You don't like part of that, but you trust God. In the professional world, they call that dialectical thinking, the ability to think about and hold two things that seem like they contradict. I just call it real life. Don't you? Because this is the human experience portrayed in Psalm 13. That often when things happen and circumstances arise and situations develop, we wonder, did God forget what he promised? I thought, or you know, we have to hold our perplexities and our fear in this hand while at the same time saying, I trust God. That can happen, watch this, when underneath your feet are God's promises. And what I think this psalm is showing that we move from the lamenting aspect to the trusting aspect because we are standing on the promises of God. We are willing to say, I don't know a lot about what's happening out there, but I know things about God and what he's doing. And so we stand on that and it helps us deal with, react to, process all that we don't understand and know. In fact, let me just be this bold with you. I think the only way that one can hold conflicting, complex emotions and situations is by standing on the sure bedrock of God's promises. I think otherwise it's impossible. But when the child of God stands on the word of God, then they can, in the midst of lots of difficulty, with lots of questions, multiple fears, unanswered situations, 
dreaded circumstances, they can say, in the midst of all those, I trust God. You see, this doesn't mean that these fears and frustrations don't exist. It just means they don't dominate. It doesn't mean that they're not real. It just means they're not in control. They don't hold the leash of your life. What holds your life together are the promises of God. All 8,810 of them. And this is what we see happening to David here. He's moving from complexity to simplicity, from turmoil to trust, from perplexity to peace. This is all within this movement of lament. And it's happening because he's rooting that in God's promises. So let me see if I can summarize this for you. Jot this down. I'll have you say it with me in a moment. Put it in the margin of your Bible, perhaps in your journals. Here's a good way to summarize the lamenter's journey in light of Psalm 13. That lamenters watch every frustration and fear fall under the faithful promises of God. You're aware they're there. You're not pretending they don't exist. You're not acting like you're not human. You're just saying and admitting that all of those frustrations and questions and fears, they're not greater than God's promises. Will you say this with me, church? Just repeat this with confidence, with humility, together. Lamenters, watch every frustration and fear fall under the faithful promises of God. I suspect you are in your head thinking of a situation in your life right now where this is occurring or needs to occur. Good for you. Here's one example of how this is occurring in our church. Jeff and Emily Simak at the 830 service dedicated their little girl, Abigail. Today was a special day for them to do that because four years ago today, Emily gave birth to William Michael, but he was stillborn. Just a just hard to contemplate. Some of you have been through that. You know that experience. It's just very, just it's tragic from the human perspective in every way to give birth to a child who doesn't live. Jeff and Emily knew at 20 weeks there was something terminally wrong. They weren't sure when it would all take its toll, but it did in week 24 and I was talking to Jeff and Emily this week, and they both said it's special for us that on this day we'll get to dedicate Abigail. And then they both began to just recite the promises of God that have held them since this day four years ago. Jeff said, you know, Todd, we will see uh, William again. That's a promise of God. Emily would comment that the Lord sustains us when I think about all the what-ifs. God's peace comes in unexplainable ways. That's a promise from God to his people, that his peace 
will be unexplainable and given to us. And they just kind of recount the different ways in which they've been able to kind of make this journey these last four years, and no doubt every year hereafter, based on the promises of God. Because let's just admit, emotions will keep running deep. Tears will always be there. There'll be a thousand whys and endless what-ifs for the rest of their life. But what holds them together is not their best guess, a friend's advice, a companion's counsel. What holds you together in times like that are the promises of God. Now, I ask you to hang with me till the very end, and here's why. Because I want to show you what the promises of God are, all 8,810 of them. Every eye, every ear, listen. The promises of God are a person. The person of Jesus Christ. You say, I'm not following you, Todd. Great question. I'll just give you the Bible. 2 Corinthians 1.20. I love this verse in which Paul says, all the promises of God in Christ are yes. And what Paul does, he points to Christ to say, if you have a moment of doubt, if you have a question, a fear, Look at Jesus because everything God has promised is fulfilled in a person, Jesus Christ, long promised thousands of years ago. Over 300 promises and prophecies made about his birth all came true. And then all the prophecies about the gospel all culminated with the phrase, it is finished. And then God drawing all of his elect from all four corners of the globe over and over, God's saving people. God is keeping his word in every single way. And he's keeping every single one of his words through Jesus Christ. If you want to know what the promises of God look like, look at Jesus. And when Jesus Christ is under your feet, then you can coexist with lots of questions and fears and perplexities and problems. Because, you know, God kept every single promise pertaining to Jesus and brought it to fruition. He will keep every one of them going forward that pertains to Jesus. He will come again and there will be no more tears. Those who are dead in Christ will rise from their grave. There will be no more sorrow. Injustice will be gone. And God's kingdom will come to earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus will be king. So if you want to know what the promises of God look like, look to Jesus. And build your life on him because everything God has said is yes in Jesus. No wonder the writer of Hebrews would say, fix your eyes on Jesus. And this morning, church, do not leave here thinking, we heard a great message on the promises of God. I've got to go memorize 8,810 of them. Memorizing them may be a good idea, but they're all pointed to and rooted in and fulfilled in Jesus. I want to point you to a person who is the fulfillment, the embodiment of every single promise of God. And you fix your eyes and set your hope on Jesus. And you cling to him 
when you have frustrating perplexities and a fearful prognosis, you know that every one of God's faithful promises is rooted in, fulfilled in Jesus. So hold on to him. Fix your eyes on him. In doing so, church, I am confident that together we will move in our lamenting moments from complexity to simplicity, from turmoil to trust, from perplexity to peace.